Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. But I remember going to pick up the cassette tape at the the dubbing place where we had maybe 500 of them dubbed. And I opened up the box and I couldn't wait to play it on my car stereo because that's the barometer of whether or not something sounds good, right? You put it in your car stereo and you crank it up and it still is to this day. And I had a fantastic Alpine deck and great speakers and I was psyched. I couldn't wait to bust into this box. I got into the car and I opened up the box and at that point I had no idea that the album had a title or a name or anything. And I took out the first tape and it said junta and i thought this is a joke i pawed through the box and they all said junta i said what's going on here and then i proceeded to put the tape in the tape deck and crank it up and you know the rest as they say is history it sounded great well junta introduced me to the band fish because i had no idea who they were you know it's the band from vermont called our booking manager and uh they wanted to do a demo and they came down and boy did they kick ass <laughs> junta fish's debut studio album was released in may of 1989 it was recorded in 1987 and 88 on 16 track two inch tape at euphoria sound studios in revere massachusetts after a few years as a band playing shows and writing songs, they were ready to get into a studio and create their first real record that would go out into the world. to dive into the creation of Fish's first epic studio statement right after a word from our sponsors.
So how do you pronounce the name of Fish's first album anyway? Junta. 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 My name's Ben Hunter, uh, also known as Junta to a certain uh, constituency. And uh, I got involved in 1988. If memory serves, my first gig uh, seeing them was at the front in perhaps May of 88. And I was uh, immediately blown away by their diversity, by their original songs, by the energy of the covers that they chose. Ben came on the scene just as the Junta sessions were coming together. Our colleague, Don Jenkins of Female Centrics, spoke to Gordon Hukalu, an audio engineer and producer who helped Fish record Junta. Well, my accent hasn't changed. It's pretty much the same that it's always been, except when I went to work in Revere, where they drop their R's. So if you're in Revere, you're dropping your R's, you know, you're in Revere. So I was looking in the one ads and I saw an ad from a place called Euphoria Sound and they were looking for a new chief engineer. So I called this guy named Howie Cook. Cook owned a boutique recording studio just five miles south of Boston. And uh, so I drove to Revia and met, met Howie. We got along really, really well. And I just kind of signed up and stayed with him for about eight years. Uh, we kind of turned it into a partnership eventually. And yeah, we, we ended up doing a whole bunch of stuff there. Again, mostly local Boston bands. Some names that people might know might be Johnny Thunders, uh, Rick Danko from the band, uh, Jimmy Miller, who is the producer of the Rolling Stones, he came in and produced some stuff with us. The small town where Fish recorded Junta is named after the Revolutionary War patriot Paul Revere, best known for his midnight ride in 1775, alerting colonial armies by shouting, the British are coming, before the battles of Lexington and Concord. In a sense, Fish's release of Junta was also a proclamation to the tired masses, drained by the cultural commercialism and social conservatism of the Reagan era, that something new, something raw and original was being released. But people who came across Junta didn't have to prepare for battle. All they had to do was listen. I'm in a, in a prog. So they clearly tapped into almost all of the bands that I was into. And I'm just kind of going, oh my God, who are these guys? So, so I ran out to the, to the uh, office and I said, guys, you got to come and... <laughs> You gotta come and hear these guys. They're just unfreaking believable. So they do one take of, of this tune all the way through. There's no editing involved in any of these songs. No editing whatsoever. So they go through one and they go, hey, how was it? And I went, it was good. You know, let's do another one just, just to get it down. Let's just do another one. So they do, they do another one. And I'm pretty sure the second one was the one, you know, they came into the control room and they listened to it down. We listened to both of them and we all agreed. Yeah. The second one was the one. So that's when we would normally do overdubs, but because it was a short session, it was only three days. We did the, I'm going to call it basics, even though they all played live for all four of the songs. And we, and we knocked out, I'm pretty sure we knocked them all out. Fresh sounds, a new dawn on the horizon. The 90s were right around the corner. Technological breakthroughs, Clintonian discrepancies, and the rise of fish. We were on the precipice of a new era. What a time to be on Earth. What a time to be a fish fan. 
I'm reminded of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem, Paul Revere's Ride, where he states, To every Middlesex village and farm, a cry of defiance and not of fear, a voice in the darkness, a knock at the door, and a word that shall echo forevermore. Junta embodies Fish's determined, active rebellion against mainstream music. A step forward, not of fear, but a knock at the door, letting us know that Fish has arrived. The album is named after Ben Hunter, the band's first manager, and the cover art was designed by Jim Pollock. Junta includes compositions like You Enjoy Myself, Foam, Divided Sky, David Bowie, Fee, and of course Contact. We have a memento of the Junta sessions on video, available on YouTube, which is a behind-the-scenes recording of Trey enthusiastically conducting a group of elementary school kids as they sing about tires making contact with the road. Of course I remember the words. Those words have been stuck in my in my uh All right, but we could get them wrong and that would be very embarrassing for the fish community. The tires are the things <laughs> on the car that make contact with the road. No, but it goes the tires are the things on the car that make contact with the road. And then it went do 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 do. The car is the thing on the road that takes you back to your abode. I think I got it right. <laughs> the tires are the things on your car. An ode to mundane reality that concludes with a touching love poem. Lindsay Weiss, the elementary school daughter of Euphoria sound owner Howie Cook, remembers recording the chorus to contact with a group of friends. So we were there in a, in a sound room and, you know, Gordon was coming in and, and set up a microphone in front of us. Kids were great. I mean, they, they followed along. I think we recorded them like five times in a row and just, just we just kept, you know, doubled it, then tripled it, then quadrupled it. It sounds like a real lot of kids. So, you know, we ended up with like 50 or 60 kids on the tape. The, the children were in overdub, but I think we did like four or five overdubs. So they, they sang it once. Then, in fact, in the video, you can see specifically that there is a smaller group that starts out and we already did a take with them. And then a whole bunch more kids pile in and you can see me moving the microphones around to make room for it. And, you know, Trey is trying to, to arrange them in some particular way and nobody's listening and he goes oh well <laughs> and you know we were basically singing the chorus over and over again for hours <laughs> so and, and i think i think the video like probably after like two hours and, and it's funny because i because i see myself and i look like i'm bored out of my mind but it was i think it was real fun at first and and you know and we just kept going oh you know gordon is like a perfectionist so gordon the, the sound engineer was was like my dad's top sound engineer and you know i remember him saying i'm putting gordon on this project and you'd, you'd nail it and then he'd say, great, now let's do it again and again and again and again. My favorite memory from this, and, and you can see it a little bit in the video, but um, right, right? So he has this like long hair and he was just like rocking out. And I just remember looking at him and being like, wow, that guy really has dance moves. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, as a kid, you know, his arms were like flailing everywhere and the hair was like going crazy. And, and you know, his head was going back and forth. He had this like long hair and he was jumping up and down and he was just so animated and, and excited that that I think 
think, uh, you know, even though you can't really tell from, from looking at the video, but, you know, we were really excited about it. I think the video was, was you know, two, two and a half hours into it. And I think we were all exhausted, frankly. You know, Trey was kind of like waving his arms crazily in the air and trying to get everybody to, you know, sync up and what have you. And we didn't have enough headphones for everybody. We, you know, we only had enough headphones for like a regular band. You know, that record is still hanging in my dad's office um, in Revere. They've since moved to a, a larger office, the company, uh, which is now called Sound and Vision Media. But that record still posted to the wall. They're so proud of it. And every time I go back and I, you know, visit them and I see it, it you know, really does remind me of that wonderful time. But he, he loved music and he was a great guy. And anybody who knew him and had the chance to know him um, respected him and loved him. And you know, this was just one of those amazing memories that we have, you know, growing up with my dad, just some, some incredible opportunity and experience that we got to do with him as being his children. Junta was another point in Fish's maturation, establishing their sound going forward. In Spanish, Junta, pronounced junta, means meeting, a convergence of sorts. The word comes from the Latin junger, which means to join together, like a joining of new ideas. In English, the noun junta refers to a political or military group in power, becoming popularized in 1808 in conjunction with private councils formed secretly across Spain to resist Napoleon. But this junta was different, unique to fish. Just like the cover art for the album, it's black and white. Nose soldiers march on top of a subterranean room where a large man sits, leaning on a table. A fish is mounted on the wall as an imprisoned doorman of sorts tries to leave. I made the cover art uh, in 89 and, uh, it had been, uh, they were, they were playing the Chestnut Cabaret in Philadelphia. That's Jim Pollock. He's an artist who went to Goddard College with Trey, Page, and Fish and has produced a considerable amount of original artwork for the band. He's a world-renowned artist, using his comic-inspired perspective to create original prints and posters for Fish and many others. His name has become synonymous with incredible Fish creations, and because they're so unique and beautiful, you refer to them as you might refer to a fine work of art if you're lucky enough to have a Pollock. After a quick break, we're going to hear more from Jim about this early work of his, the iconic album cover. working on this square piece of artwork on illustration board which became the front of Punta. And so like I just like created other scenes from the songs using figures that I had just invented out of my head. Not thinking that we're in the cassette realm, we're not even in CDs, no, nothing square. But I was still thinking, ah, I gotta do an album cover or something. So it was a square thing. And I guess I had heard all the songs and they kind of must have permeated into my brain because basically I did this kind of surrealistic scene and then I gave it to Fishman, who was the guy I, I always gave stuff to Fish. It's like, hey, Fish, look at this, look what I made. 
and then like fish had it and they they drove it around in their van for the rest of the tour and then it ended up there and then they used part of it for uh the cassette but it wasn't full square and then it wasn't until they went to cds which was i forget 92 or something like that they were like okay well we want to use the whole thing for the front but we have all these liner notes and can you do some other illustration concerning the song and i'm like i guess but like so like i took all these figures that i just came out of my head and then i turned them into the different people in the song including yeah it's really odd it's like backwards dumb so you like look at the oh this looks like oh that's probably like Esther, and that looks like the armenian man and this it was late one fall night at a fairground near town when esther first saw the armenian man who groveled yeah esther wow what an interesting tune i mean compared to all of the other songs on the record it, it just has I don't know to me it, it has like a, a very different feel to it it's a very dark song so like all the other tunes we recorded the basics first uh, then we did all the instrumental overdubs but when it came time to do the vocals Trey wanted to find you know that special something in himself to be able to emote the intimate style that he was looking to do that proved to be elusive for him for the first couple of tries and he kind of got a bit frustrated at it and we all just kind of said okay okay, let's just take a break. Let's just take a break. So, so he left the studio and he went out and, you know, he was searching for his muse, whatever he was doing. Yeah. Wandering the, wandering the lovely streets of Revere. You know, I mean, when he had left, he was kind of despondent. He was kind of going, I don't know if this is going to happen, you know? Um, but you know, we, we were all like going, yeah, well, it'll be great. We all took lunch. That was great. Uh, so he went on walkabout for a while. And, um, when he came back, you could see it was like a little glimmer in his eye. It was like, you could see that it, it was still tentative. He was still like, I'm not sure, but I think I'm feeling it. And he asked for everybody to leave the control room and to turn the lights down, which we did. So it was just, it was just me and him. And um, I hit record and I think it was one take. And it I don't even know if we stopped to do any punching, to tell you the truth. It, I don't know where he pulled it from, but there was an innocence to his voice. It was this really young innocence and this lightness and with him telling this really dark tale. The, I love the juxtaposition of, of this really sweet voice telling this incredibly dark tale. The waves seemed to open and swallow her whole As the doll pulled her down through the eerie green deep And the sound of the laughing old man filled her ears As she drifted away to a tranquil and motionless Jim Pollock matches his fairy tale illustrations with some of the characters, mainly from the songs Esther and Fee, to create the cover art for Junta. I don't think there ever was really anybody in the in the songs that was the guy with the gun guarding the door. That, like someone's coming in because like all these dancing noses are pounding on the roof. And so, uh, and the dancing noses is totally like a, a play on the dancing bears. Just kind of like, I always thought of like fish as like kind of a funnier Grateful Dead or like, you know, kind of in the Grateful Dead realm only. I mean, I never thought they sounded like them because like I kind of have a good musical ear 
And I always thought, no, no, these guys are more like like mothers of invention kind of thing. It's like they got humor, they got the the meter change, they have like all types of things. Fee and Floyd and all those guys are always fighting and stuff. So the first sound effect is Floyd broke off uh, the neck of a bottle. So this was before there were a whole bunch of sound effects libraries out there. There were some, but, you know, not a lot. And... Uh, Sampling was just starting to kind of, you know, eke its way out. Uh, so, you know, we didn't have any samplers at that point. So we needed to make these sound effects ourselves. So for the neck of the bottle, we just got a big cardboard box. And I think, I don't know, if we with a hammer and a bottle. And we just played the 16 track back, which had the track of, you know, on it and on cue one of the lads went and uh just smashed the bottle and i think i think we got that one in the first take there's a term that we used back then called flying something in and what that basically means is is that since you know we don't have uh, a time-coded playback unit that's synchronized with the 16 track in order to get something synced up with it you'd be playing the 16 track and you needed to record something onto it in sync with the music and you'd have to do it manually whether it was a sound effect or whether maybe you were playing it off of a cd or maybe you were playing it off of another tape so you can imagine how difficult it would be to it's a performance and when you're dealing with technology especially cd players back then they were really wonky and you'd hit play and it would like, you know, take like X number of random seconds before it would actually play and what have you. And this is important when we get to uh, dinner in a movie. Uh, so uh, second sound effect on Fee. Uh, Fee hits the deck. So <laughs> again, we didn't have a <laughs> the sound effect of somebody falling. So one of the band members, and if memory serves, it might have been Fishman, threw himself on the floor of one of our ISO rooms, which was actually an old-timey icebox uh, refrigerator from a restaurant. Mostly, yeah, it was the storytelling, the Esther, the Fee. Like little, almost like little children's stories of sorts. Can, can we take a moment, I was going to say a moment of silence, but this is a podcast, so silence doesn't work. But just take, just take a moment and just, you know, just be thankful that this whole thing just happened, with, just manifested, and how this music has changed so many people's lives and, and connected so many people. You know, m music is the most important thing in my life. It, it always has been. Gordon's words of wisdom ring true. As the end of the global pandemic is in sight, it's important to take some time to appreciate the existence of the music we love as we anticipate its live return in the not-so-distant future. The live fish experience has given people an opportunity to create lifelong memories around expression, dance, friends, and family. Junta is the official beginning of this tradition, a fusion of anticipation and release that propelled the band onward. Let's go back to the band's first manager, Ben Hunter. My longtime nickname has been Junta, uh, J-U-N-T-A. It's just sort of a play on Hunter. 
and people thought it was funny and it kind of stuck. And then for some reason, when I was introduced to the band, they thought it was hilarious. They thought it was great. Uh, probably funnier than it actually is for some reason, but there's a perver perverse sense of humor there that permeates all bands' ecosystem. So they thought that was funny. And probably in retrospect, part of the reason I think that they probably called the record Junta is because there was plausible deniability that they were actually calling it Junta, which is in musical terms in those days, sort of what they were performing was a Junta on all acceptable types of music that were popular at the time. Their whole zeitgeist couldn't have been further afield of what was popular then. So what they were actually committing was a junta on the record industry. Of course, it was cloaked in my nickname, which was Junta. So you do the math. I, I will always say that it was Junta. Trey may say now that it was Junta, but the actual inspiration for the album was my nickname. Ben has an innate ability to make people want to experience the music he loves. Ben the persuader, the proselytizer, converting the unassuming into devoted music fans. Before I went to school in September of 86, I had managed to score a, a, a block of uh, hash, a black hash about the size of my fist, which in light of the circumstances was like, you know, seeing a two-horned unicorn or something, you know? It was, yeah, it was, it was like gold. And I also bought a, a brand new red, white, and blue graphics bong. And so when I went started going to classes, I would, you know, look at people in my class and sort of identify them as people who I might want to you know, hang out with and say, hey, do you have plan after class and they'd say no and I'd say you do now and I would bring them over to my dorm room and I also had brought three huge suitcases that contained about you know probably 5,000 different tapes cassette tapes and you remember cassette tapes that we so lovingly wrote on and we wrote all the set lists and I was very very regimented about it and I had them all in order bootlegs and tapes of albums and, you know thousands and thousands of hours of listening so at the same time as giving these people a little taste of the hash I would make them listen to music so I began to kind of get the sobriquet of the music guy. This is the music guy. So once Fish came into my life, which was, my, I guess it was my junior year, I was known by that point as the music guy. So when I was standing there on Calm Avenue, handing out a flyer that said, find bliss, see Fish, you know, hey, come see this gig. Look somebody in the eye, hand them a flyer. It's the old school way of promotion, but it's very, very effective. So lo and behold, the first Molly's gig we had, which I believe was on a Sunday night, several hundred people came, you know, and uh, it was just the pattern that followed for years to come. One person would come to the gig, the next time he'd bring two friends because they were just so blown away by everything. So it, it kind of made its own sauce. And by the time the Paradise came around, although Fish did bring a few buses of fans down from Burlington, I believe the show probably would have been sold out without that anyway. Ben's talking about the show at the Paradise Rock Club in Boston on January 26, 1989. Because they weren't sure if they could fill the club, which had a 650-person capacity, the band ended up renting out the club and then sold tickets. In a way that foreshadows Fish's growth, the gig completely sold out, reportedly leaving hundreds of confused fans shut out. We're going to be focusing more on this critical fish show in a future episode. Manager Ben Hunter was helping fish grow by using word of mouth marketing, a technique that is arguably the most important form of communication, even in today's society where so much conversation has moved behind glass screens. 
Well, and, and, and that whole philosophy persists to this day, the philosophy of, hey, I'm looking you in the eye and I'm telling you this is great. Come check this out with me. And that is by far the most effective form of promotion that I've found. Later on, it expanded to the internet, but for all intents and purposes, it's one person telling another person, hey, on my honor, this is great. Come see it and you'll like it. And 99 times out of 100, that happened. And it was just a very organic way to build a band. There was maybe somewhat of a tentative transitional period where both John and I were kind of agitating in different geographic areas to get gigs and to raise the profile of the band and to proselytize, you know, but it wasn't hard because we both loved it. And I mean, it was our lives. We loved it. We lived it so much and we're so into the music and we're really sincere about it. There are so many bands across the country that are creative and talented, but some aren't able to grow their fan base and ultimately are unable to accomplish the things Fish has. We touched on a couple of those bands in episode three, but because of managers like Ben Hunter and John Paluska and uniquely dedicated fans, Fish was able to spread their music across the country without having to rely on record deals, never compromising their sound or integrity. As a result, an album like Junta was less of a push to impress people or sell records as it was an authentic display of who they were as musicians at the time they recorded it. And we just began to kind of pick routes that would make sense for a tour and try to secure gigs by virtue of this demo tape and this promo packet. And they, one thing built on the next, and you could say, well, you know, we just drew 200 people in at Hamilton or, you know, something like this. So can we try your club? And it was a little bit hard sledding at first because the music was so far out of a lot of people's understanding of what music should be at that point. It was, an, it was kind of anachronistic, but it was familiar at the same time. And I'd like to think that I played a minor role in helping them break through to another level. Paluska certainly took them to many levels after that. And, uh, you know, the glory goes to him because he was very, very very good manager. John Paluska and Ben Hunter helped Fish grow in those early days. But of course, as Ben said, the music was central to the growth. The early songs, many from Junta like David Bowie, Fluffhead, You Enjoy Myself, Foam, and Golgi Apparatus, showcase Fish's unique creative spirit. This spirit ignited an adventure that brought people in from all across the Northeast and all across the country. Unlike other bands who write popular songs and continue to play them without much adjustment or development, what makes Fish different is their unconditional commitment to the art of creation, honoring spontaneity by using the structure of these songs as springboards for exploration. What I do remember is that they booked a, uh, a three-day demo session in 88, and... I can tell you that the songs we recorded during that session were as Golgi Apparatus, Fee, Fluffhead, and David Bowie. 
they came in, you know, we, we sat down and we had a little powwow about what they were about and what they were looking to do. And the real interesting thing for me is that they wanted to play live. And that's something that most of the bands didn't do. There were a few bands that played live, but most didn't. There's this thing that you do in recording, at least back when you're recording real instruments and real bands, uh, which is called basics. And basics is when you lay down the bass guitar, the drums, uh, a rhythm guitar, of some kind uh, that just kind of keeps you going in a scratch vocal. That's usually what the basics are. And then you do overdubs on top of that to, to build the rest of the song. Fish was a bit different in that they wanted to set up and just play the song from beginning to end. People want to feel the sense of discovery. And Fish allowed people to do that because the building of the reputation was so incremental and so methodical, one person at a time. And that's why they will have a career for years to come. You know, if you're a one-hit wonder, you're here today and you're gone tomorrow. That's true in music. It's true in the art business, in the visual art business. Everybody wants a sense of discovery. And that's why people say still, oh, I saw R.E.M. at the 40 Watt Club in 1982, because they feel that sense of ownership. And Fish's growth has enabled people to take ownership of their love of the band. And the love runs deep because of that, but it also runs deep because people feel it so intensely and they tell their friends. It's been that organic kind of growth that has wholly led to the fantastic career that they've had. Junto was released on May 8th, 1989. The album was self-released by the band without support from a record label. There was a release party at the front on May 9th, 1989. According to Fish.com, Chris Carota and Kiki Colgan stuffed J-Card labels into cassettes all afternoon to prepare for the on-sale. The band started set two with an announcement about the Junta tape release, saying, This next one's from our first album. Available at the soundboard. Although Junta was re-released by Elektra Records in 1992, this first album perfectly captures where Fish was in 1988 and 1989, blazing their own unique path, creating the conditions for their own success, staying true to themselves and their fans, and not worrying about what anyone else thought about what they were creating. In the next episode of Undermine, we're going back to the Paradise Rock Club on January 26, 1989, to look at the story, the music, and the legacy of that legendary evening. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Co-hosted by David Goldstein, Jonathan Hart, and Brad Tenbrook. Writing and production assistance by Noah Eckstein. Production assistance by Christina Collins and Don Jenkins. Original music by Amar Sastry. Art by Mark Dowd. I want to give a special shout-out to Nick Sejas, who helps make Undermine happen, and who brings humor, intelligence, and his vast professional experience to our social media on a regular basis. Thanks, Nick. Thank you to all of our interviewees. We'll see you next week.
Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Grey Street.